You're listening to the Manchester Vineyard Podcast. We'd love for you to join us. To discover more about who we are, where we meet, and how you can connect with us, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description. I intend to... Um, well, I've started doing a series that I'm really excited about. I've sensed God nudging me on this for a while, but the timing feels right, and I've called it Kingdom First. Matthew 6:33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and live righteously, and everything else, he will give you everything you need. Everything else will be added unto you, depending on the version you read. And there's a few areas that I really hope and pray that this will unlock kingdom thinking in us, and uh, as we seek to grow in a kingdom way, we want to see it unlocked in our lives. And part of the journey of putting the kingdom first means I think we need to look at relationships. And that's where we're going today. I'm going to start a mini-series um, per- specifically pressing into relationships. Let me, let me just explain why I think this is crucial. On an average, nothing special, nothing to write home about morning in January 2007, during the morning rush hour, a young guy entered the metro station in Washington. There was nothing distinctive about the way he looked, what he was doing. He's a young guy, he's in jeans, he had a long sleeve t-shirt, he was wearing a red baseball cap with the Washington's Nationals logo on it. He stood against the wall at the top of the escalator and he pulled out a violin from a small case and he threw just a a few dollars of small loose change of seed money into it as he began to busk. And he played for about 45 minutes to a never-ending conveyor belt of people who were moving through the, the metro station that morning. They reckon maybe a few thousand people passed him in that time. He played to a preoccupied group of people who walked past him. There was one small young boy who lingered for a few minutes, listening, maybe intrigued by what he was doing, until his mother impatiently grabbed his arm and dragged him onto the escalator. The few that did give money seemed to toss it into his case, almost out of guilt, almost on the run, potentially an expression of guilt rather than an expression of appreciation. Nobody seemed to actually stop and listen to the music that he was playing or even acknowledge that he was playing it. When he finished, this young guy collected the money. He packed up his violin and he left the station. Nobody applauded. Nobody even noticed that he'd finished, potentially not even noticing that he'd been there in the first place. For his hard work that morning, he earned a grand total of $32.17. On last Thursday's exchange rate, I reckon that's about £24.46. Not a lot. The supposedly cultured crowd in that metro station, largely made up of federal government workers, were unaware that that morning that young violinist in the metro was Joshua Bell. Many of you (laughs) have heard of Joshua Bell. I hadn't. Um, But for those that do know, he's one of the finest classical musicians of a generation. He played some of the most complex and elegant music ever written on one of the most valuable violins that he did that morning ever made, just short of three million pounds. Three million pounds for a violin is like, 
Anyway, um, a few days earlier, he'd been playing to a capacity audience at Boston Symphony Hall with people paying a minimum of $100, some going up to extreme amounts of money per ticket. He's got a career that spans as a solo artist over 30 years. He's a chamber musician, a recording artist, a conductor, and a director. He's one of the most celebrated violinists of the entire era. In fact, he's performed with every major orchestra in the world across six continents. But on that average Friday morning, he was just another guy struggling to compete for the busy attention of the people on their way to work. Joshua's impromptu performance in the Metro was actually arranged by the Washington Post as a social experiment to see if in a mundane environment, at an inconvenient time, true beauty would transcend it. The Washington Post posed this question. They said, do we perceive beauty in unexpected places? The question that I want to pose today that I think will pop up over the next few weeks throughout this series is, are we shaped and are we influenced more than we realise by the context in which we live. The cultural attitude that surrounds us on a daily basis starts to provide the moral wallpaper of our lives, deeply shaping our imagination, deeply shaping what life should look like. To a large extent, whether we're aware of that, even consciously or not, this formation starts to take place in our lives. All that it clouds out whether or not alternatives even exist, especially in the area of relationships. What I want to say is sometimes our experience, our vision, our understanding or even our perception of relationships or all that God has for us and has called us to can be very much like Joshua Bell's experience when, he's, when he was busking. His music on the subway or the soundtrack of our lives, I think, can sometimes appear dull or inconvenient as busy people bustle past on their way to a seeming better or more important way of living. Yet if we pause, if we really listen, we might realise that we could live, we should live, we're called to live with a vision of doing relationships, of kingdom-first living that represents the music of heaven. Sometimes in the context, I'm aware that you find yourselves. It's altering how you feel about the potential tune that has been played. The kingdom first vision of relationships really represents the divine tune that has been played out on a priceless instrument. The priceless instrument being you. As a side point, I think we're currently seeing a shift from the midlife crisis to a much younger crisis in many people, an earlier life crisis. They seem to be asking three questions. Who will I end up with? Where will I call home? Where will I live? Where will I put my roots down? And then finally, what will my career be? And now many people in their 20s and broader are asking those questions. And if all three don't seem to come together, it creates in them a point of crisis. The reality is that in every day outworking of our lives, our relationships, we get to play the harmonies and the melodies of heaven. If we realise it, 
we get to do it, rather than being consumed by the culture in which we're embedded. One day I believe that we will hear and be captivated by this tune in all of its unrestrained richness in the great chamber hall, but it will be a familiar tune to us because we should and we will already have been playing with it. Do you see what I mean? This is so temporary. Who we are, what we are, what we're doing now is temporary. But the kingdom of God asks us this question. Will we perceive beauty? Will the outworking of that beauty transcend the environment in, in, in the culture in which we live? Living faithfully, Jesus-centered, kingdom-first, kingdom-orientated lives is actually it's impossible unless we are nourished and we're sustained by the vision and a vision of what human flourishing really looks like. Because obedience deepens our intimacy and relationship with the Father. If we want to know the Father, we must not only love him, but we need to obey him. So I think we've got to look at this. We've got to dig into this and we've got to grapple with this. We need to reflect and hold a mirror up to our lives and how we can best live in the life stage that you currently find yourself today. We need to look and to realise that there is a beautiful music that can be played and that there is God-given potential and the instrument for it, which is you. We need to realise that the environment and the context in which we're living it out should not dampen or hinder all that he's trying to bring to life in you and draw out of you. How can we explain why so many Jesus followers, why so many of us would know the do's and don'ts within the context of relationship and yet struggle to live them out? Maybe, I don't know, just a a few thoughts, maybe because we've reduced things to a set of rules to live by without actually articulating a coherent vision for kingdom-centred relationships that actually then makes sense of why we might even live that way. A perspective that in us would deliver a big enough reason to hold fast to some of the costly decisions when there's opposing pulls in an opposite direction. Maybe it's because as a church we've never even laid it out. We've, we've never even thought about it. We just get absorbed in, in, in what we are, who we are and whatever culture is dictating to us around us rather than realising actually we can have a vision for this. We can do this well. What I want to try and start to do, start us on a journey today is to help us live out kingdom-centred relationships. You'll have heard it said, I think I've even said it, that if, if you want to build a ship, you don't drum up people to collect the wood. You don't assign them tasks and give them work. You teach them to long for the in- endless immensity of the open sea. I'm not today about to propose all of the answers or all of the solutions. I'm not today about to reflect on everything that you might personally be grappling with. But what I want to do is encourage us to have a vision, a kingdom-first vision for relationships, stirring you to decide and to reflect on for yourself, what is it to live a kingdom-first marriage? What is it to live as a single person in a kingdom-first way? To reflect on what it looks like to live a kingdom-first life in in a hyper-sexualized world. I'm not going to 
list off all of the problems that I think we face. Many of us will be aware of them, but I think so tragically, so often, we begin to reflect many of the same perspectives in the church that have been reflected to us in the culture around us rather than transform them. For so many relationships, I would say, are a source of confusion, frustration, disappointment, anger, often despair as people move through various life stages. Often that can lead people to a crisis of faith. How how could God lead me into this lonely pit? I followed all of the rules that he said. I realise many of us today are coming from very different starting points. I realise as well, for many, I'm actually speaking into a place of pain. I've often reflected on who who am I to speak into some of this. I've come to realise that can't stop us. And actually, that is an incredibly dangerous perspective if I allow it to. I can't help you because I've not experienced it myself. That's dangerous. I'm just being honest with you. That's how I've reflected on this at times. But the reality is I don't believe that. I believe we're a collective family with the Spirit of God brooding over us. We can walk this out together and together we can find greater freedom and fruit in our kingdom living. What I would say is whilst I haven't experienced personally some of the pain that some of you are carrying, I do care. We care. We all have a story to tell. We all have things that will have shaped us and moulded us positively or negatively. I've walked through the pain of longing for children, the pain of longing for a child that then we went on to lose through the agony of miscarriage, the earth-shattering reality of a broken family and a dad that had many, many sexual partners, the confusion of realising I've got two half-brothers and the devastation that my dad had an affair with somebody in a church environment. Now, don't hear me wrong, I'm not trying to justify speaking on this. I'm not here to say what to you might be the popular thing. Actually, I want to say what I believe to be the biblically right sound thing. But we also need to be a church that applies application. The the Bible says this, so what? What difference does that make? How does that change us? How do we act and how do we respond differently as a result? The, The priority of Paul's ministry that we see in the New Testament was to present his congregations at Jesus' return as mature communities of disciples without blemish. So speaking into relationships, which actually are a crucial part of our discipleship. It's not about ticking a box in some kind of spiritual formation to help us live happier lives. It's important because in the kingdom of God, we're supposed to be people whose target is reconciled relationships, good relationships within the community of faith. And we're living in our future destiny now. But what I am trying to say is I think we've all got stuff under the surface. Some of us have lived in pain. Pain under the surface can then affect our responses and our reactions to others. So I'd say this is a season and a time of maximum grace and love. And equally, we can't shy away from the truth and allow the spirit to shape us as we go on this journey together. All of that said, we've run out of time. Uh, We'll do it next week. No, we haven't. 
some of you are like, I wish, I wish we had. Um, no. There's, there's, this, there's this little passage in, in 1 Corinthians 7, and um, it talks about being married, and it talks about being single. Now, the danger is, in the short period of time we've got together, that we choose bits that are easily going to fit into this morning. I think that would do a huge injustice to the context of the passage and why the Apostle Paul is sharing what he did in the first place. You know, the the Corinthian church was in turmoil because of the immorality in the culture surrounding it then. Basically, some stuff was going on back then. I think it's so easy to think that it's only now that this stuff happens. Actually, back then... Some, some Greeks, in, in their desire to reject sexual immorality, were considering rejecting sex and marriage altogether. Therefore, some of the Corinthian Jesus followers wondered if they needed to do that as well. Should, should we do that as well, is kind of the question they're asking Paul. And the, the kind of questions that they're asking him are like, well, if, if sex is perverted, shouldn't we abstain from that in marriage? Or if my spouse is unsaved, should I get divorced? Or should unmarried people and widows remain unmarried? And Paul answers most of the questions by saying, guys, just just relax a little bit. You know, stop running off in all these crazy directions. He He doesn't quite use that language. That's my take on it. But I think that's roughly what he's saying. He kind of says to them, right, you guys, right, listen. For now, just stay put. Just be content in the situation and the circumstances in which God has currently placed you. If, if you're married, don't seek to be single. And if you're single, don't seek to be married. Go, live God's way in the season that you're in. Now, let's, let's just have a quick look at the passage and open up a can of worms that we're never going to get back in the can this morning. But um, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 25 says this. Now, regarding your question about young women who are not yet married, I don't have a command from the Lord for them, but the Lord in his mercy has given me wisdom that can be trusted, and I'll share it with you. Because of the present crisis, I think it is best to remain as you are. If you have a wife, do not seek to end the marriage. If you do not have a wife, do not seek to get married. But if you do get married, it's not a sin. And if a young woman gets married, it is not a sin. However, those who get married at this time will have troubles, and I'm trying to spare you those problems. But let me say this, dear brothers and sisters, the time that remains is very short. So from now on, those with wives should focus only on their marriage. Those who weep or rejoice or buy buy things should not be absorbed by their weeping or their joy or their possessions. Those who use the things of this world should not become so attached to them, for this world as we know it will soon pass away. I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking about how to please him, but a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In the same way, a woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. I am saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best 
with as few distractions as possible. So as you can tell, this is going to be straightforward this morning. Um, a load of that is contextual. Paul is, Paul is fielding questions coming at him, as I, I just mentioned, and we don't have time to pick loads out, but I just want to chew on some of the meat, if we can. Sorry, veggies. Um, but often, you know, what are, we, what are we trying to do here? We're, we're trying to look at what is wisdom. What is wisdom? Paul says, verse 25, I don't have a command from the Lord for them, but the Lord in his mercy has given me wisdom that can be trusted, and I'll share it with you. We need wisdom. In your life stage, I want to say you need wisdom. Have you ever sought out wisdom? Do you just roll with whatever is thrown at you? Not all of the conversations, not all of the circumstances that you find yourself are black and white. I'd say it's about wisdom. Wisdom is skill for living, biblical, obedient, skill for living. Then in the, in the passage, Paul speaks into a few specifics that I'm not going to fully delve into now, but he says, verse 29, but let me say this, dear brothers and sisters, the time that remains is very short. What's, what's he doing? I think he's calling out focus and purpose. He's calling out a kingdom-first mindset. He's saying, guys, don't get so caught up in some of the distractions that are going on. You need to have focus and you need to have purpose. Don't get so focused on the thing that actually isn't the thing. Now, I'm not saying get married or don't get married, but sometimes either of those can become the thing. The, the thing is the kingdom. The purpose is love the king, live out the kingdom. Verse 35, I'm saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. There it is, I would say. That is key. He says, I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. What's going to help you serve the Lord and whilst you're serving him, not get distracted from serving him? We get distracted by virtually everything. And in the process, we lose sight of our kingdom lens. Here's, here's what I want to really say this morning. Here's where we're going with this. Time is short. Honestly, time is short. Use it well. Paul says it this way. Let me say this, dear brothers and sisters, the time that remains is very short. I haven't come up with a new thought, I've just nicked Paul's. The time that remains is very short. You know, the, t the time is short. The phrase is, is kind of wrapped up a little bit in our understanding of the, the kingdom of God. Jesus brought the kingdom of God, it's his reign and his rule. Yet... The present world, as we see it now, it's not over. We still live in a world of decay and death and disease. The kingdom of God, God's power to renew the whole of creation, his rowing and his rule has broken in to the world. It has through Jesus' first coming. But it's not fully here until he comes again. There's this old order that we still, that's still here. Although it is doomed and it is on borrowed time. But the world goes on. 
and we live in it in that in-between season. Yet our assurance about God's future, about the world to come, it should and it will and it can transform our attitudes to everything we do in our earthly activities and our earthly living. We should be glad of success, but not overly glad. We should be saddened by failure and heartache and pain, but not so downcast, because our true joy in the future is guaranteed in God. So what he's kind of saying is we are to enjoy stuff, but not become too attached to them. That's the, that's the phrase it uses in 1 Corinthians 7.31. He says, don't, don't become too attached to the things of this world. So what does that mean towards our attitude towards marriage and family? Well, Paul says that it means both being married and not married are good conditions to be in. We shouldn't place too much emphasis on one or the other. Jesus is the only spouse that can truly fulfil us, and God's family is the only family that can truly embrace and satisfy us. With this background, I think we start to understand just how radical Paul's statements and convictions are regarding singleness and marriage. Let's just bear in mind, just for a moment, Jesus was a single man, and he was a perfect man. Well, Paul's reflections in 1 Corinthians 7 is that singleness is good. It is a good condition, blessed by God. And actually, in many circumstances, he says it's actually better than marriage. As a result of this revolutionary attitude i think the early church didn't pressure people to marry that's what we kind of start to see in this letter and some of paul's other writings and and actually they institutionally supported poor widows so that they didn't have to remarry why why did the early church have that attitude well because the christian gospel and the future hope of the kingdom i think it de-idolizes marriage you know, the, the Christian church in the West, unfortunately, we've, we've not often grabbed hold of that and maintained that with the same grasp of the goodness of singleness. Instead, so often we've labelled it or allowed culture or our perception to label it as the plan B for the Christian life. Well, I want to say that the, the Bible affirms the goodness of the single life in a way that no other faith and no other worldview does. Time is short. Use it well. For, for, the, for the purpose of today, let me just reflect a little bit on singleness. We're going to go in various directions in this series, but let's just have a quick look at singleness. Please hear me. I'm trying to walk as sensitively as I can, but equally I believe we need to speak into this because I've, I've seen a trap of defining singleness only in terms of marriage the emphasis starts to be placed on waiting because of the waiting. The waiting stage isn't then the place of fulfilment or security. The waiting place becomes the place of pain and frustration because you're waiting for what could be or what should be. You know, that, that place can lead to a relationship with Jesus that is built on a deal rather than a saviour. You know, if I'm honest, I did the whole deal thing with Jesus without actually realising. Let me just explain what I did. For, for years, 
when I was about four or five, I can remember kneeling at the side of my bed, crying every day, praying the same prayer without fail, with the same words, never shorter, never adding anything else. And I prayed it for years. And my prayer was this, please, Lord Jesus, please make my dad come back and live with us. Amen. You know, when I hit 14, I started to realise that wasn't going to happen. And my faith in God, the one who was going to make it happen, the God whose job it was to make it happen, started to fall apart. I realised there was no substance to my faith because I'd made a deal. I didn't have a saviour. And here's my question to that situation. Why didn't anybody ever tell me? I spent my life in pain. I spent my life looking at the problem rather than living in the reality of an unconditional love by a father. I spent my life looking at the problem rather than calling out to my Abba father, my daddy dad, who had the best for me in the stage and season I was in, regardless of the pain I felt. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to dream or to hope or to have a longing or desire. I'm, I'm saying you are not incomplete and you do not need to live in a place where earn a sense of missing out in the now. Now, even saying that makes it sound like the destination is marriage. It, it isn't. I would say to the anyone, married or single, verse 29, so from now on, those with wives should not only focus on their marriage. Paul urges us not to regard marriage, not to regard finances, not to regard the home, not to regard security, not to regard anything as the ultimate goal of life. The destination is intimacy with the Father. It's relationship with the Saviour. It's an extension of the kingdom of God and kingdom first mindset and mentality. Now, I can't promise or offer anything else. Do you know sometimes I wish I could? I, I see, I feel the need. I see what people deeply, rightly, often long for, and it kills me to watch their pain. But honestly, the only thing that will satisfy is Jesus. And often because sometimes we don't realise that, we can so easily try and fill the gap with other things. That's what culture teaches us to do. Jesus calls us to follow him as the source of life, not as the giver of the sort of life that we think we want to have. You know, in the second view, in the way I just put that, the, the, the challenge is he starts to becoming our minds the kind of God whereby he looks like a really inconsistent parent. He gives some gifts to some children and he denies others. God becomes like a cruel Santa Claus. You know, the, the truth is we love and we trust Jesus because we love and we trust Jesus not because of what he can do for us. It doesn't remove the frustration. It doesn't eradicate the pain and the disappointment that you may feel, but it certainly places it in a place of perspective. You are not an incomplete half. Singleness has a positive and a legitimate standing in its own right. 
the New Testament writers articulate a balanced perspective on marriage and on singleness. Both are given significance and prominence in the faith community. Among the apostles, Peter was married, yet Paul remained single. Single people are welcomed as full participants in God's service. And actually, from what we read of Paul, I think you can draw out even from this passage, they may have a practical advantage. Please please don't take what I'm about to say to one extreme or the other, but marriage reflects, if marriage can reflect the intimate bond within the Godhead, then singleness expresses God's ever-expanding love for his creation as expressed in Jesus' prayer that many of us would be invited into the divine family. The broader network of relationships and friendships that are available to a single person express the divine drive for relationship that should happen and I pray will happen within a divine and enlarging family of a church. It reflects God's desire to invite and adopt all who respond to the kingdom of God. As Paul highlights in his advice to the churches, marriage and family tend to to create this narrow world of commitments that focuses on their immediate context. Now I'd say, as a father of two small children, I fully understand what he is saying. I'm not trying to lessen or speak negatively of marriage or children. If you, if you knew me well, I hope you would see quite the opposite. But the reality is that marriage and family naturally act as a huge pulling power on our time and on our energy. In contrast, singleness enables one to form a much broader network of friendships, both within the church and outside of it. Although those that are single, let me say honestly, you still need to be deeply rooted in the church community. But the reality is often just through that circumstance there is a, there is a freeing to be God's scattered seed in the world around us. Now my encouragement this morning is for us to reimagine your singleness, for it to be a place of possibility rather than a place of hindrance. Now Honestly, I am not trying to patronise you. I'm not trying to limit desire or or bury hurts or frustrations. Honestly, I'm not. I, I hear it, I see it, it pains me. But I have also seen the fruit of vision. Among other things, singleness is one of the most countercultural expressions of life we have within the church. And we need to clearly articulate what it is and reaffirm why it is that we believe in it. In so much of the Old Testament, the primary community was the, the immediate family. It was based on, on, a, on a sexual bond. In the, in the New Testament, the essential community becomes not the genetic family, but the spiritual family, the church. Rather than marriage, it's actually the New Testament's highest form of community in this age. It's the church, as well as the foretaste of our future life together. It's the wedding feast. Now, let me just, if I can, just offer a few practical thoughts. As we seek to champion those that are single, without us suddenly becoming intense or overnight being overly weird, 
I'd say there are a few natural things that in a community that has the spirit of God moving among us that we should do. We should look for how we can champion each person in the life stage that they're in. If someone is single and they have a major life event, who will stand with them in it? Who will celebrate a job? Who will help them move house? Who will invite them over regularly for lunches or dinner? Who will invite them over for breakfast on their birthday because that is a place of heightened realisation of being alone? Who will help with the stuff that might feel harder? Car repairs, DIY. Who will help them with turning up sometimes alone? I find it hard to turn up to places alone. So what do we do? We phone somebody and say, do you want to come with me? I've saved a seat for you. Do you, do you see what I mean? It matters to us. This should matter because we're a family. We're not defined by the rules of the culture. I'm, I'm not trying to get weird about it. I don't want it suddenly to become weird overnight. Some people love time on their own. I'm not trying to enforce some kind of strange car sharing. You know, but, but we need to look out for each other because we are family. I'm not seeking to place an undue focus suddenly on those that are single. They would not want that. I'm not seeking to categorise people into different segments. But my role as a shepherd is to help us form as a family. You are my brothers and sisters. We are family. And we need to think like family and we need to act like family. And our responsibility as family is to reach into people's lives and to say, you are important to me. You are important to us. That's, that's one thing. We're, we're family. And this, this should look different to the culture of the world. Here's, here's another reflection. For those that are looking for the right relationship, in fact, to all of you, I want to say, seek first the kingdom of God. I'm, I'm not trying to patronise you, but what, what does that mean? I want to say run and hard and as fast as you can into the kingdom of God and see who is keeping up. You don't want to be in a relationship that is based on something physical, something material, a personality or a connection-based criteria. You want to be with somebody that is 100% giving everything they have got to Jesus. If that person doesn't show up, you are still seeking first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added to you that you need, not that you want that you need will be found in that mix. And I don't say that lightly because I know for many of you that doesn't come without cost. But let me just speak into the, the, the place that can seem like the desert. You know, the gospel doesn't offer us a dreamland this side of Jesus' coming again. Sometimes I wish it did. But in our relationships, we experience seasons of joy, the scaling of, of great mountains. We also walk through long stretches of tiresome wilderness and the beating of many storms. That journey is the normal journey of a disciple. We need to acknowledge and to embrace the season and the nature of that season. The modern world, the modern culture 
promises a smooth and an uninterrupted progression towards whatever we want, whenever we want it. Often there's no positive meaning or place in the culture's understanding of quite a romantic narrative for the season when it's hard. Culture offers no solutions to that. Yet those hard seasons play a legitimate role in our spiritual, our moral and our relational formation. Where our vision can be clarified and where we come to rely on God. You know, Steph and I were unable to conceive children for a collective six years. In many ways, they were times of pain of searching, of tension, of confusion. We also learned to choose to say, God, I trust you. I trust you whatever happens. I trust you when it hurts. I trust you when I don't get it. I trust you when I have doubts. I choose to trust you and I choose to live a kingdom first life. I love the song that we sang this morning. God, you are so good. But that, I think, often is a declaration. It's not because we always face it in our circumstances. I sang that this morning. I said, Lord, teach my spirit, command my spirit to say that you are good. For us in that painful time, I'd say we came to know God and rely on God in a way that we simply had never needed to do so. Before, ultimately, we received an abundance of his kindness. He poured himself out on us, often through tears, often choosing to say he's good, even when we felt in pain. Vision, as I've kind of tried to describe this morning, it's not the silver bullet for discipleship. By itself, it's not going to take away the place of isolation that at times you might experience. The pain of seeing others move into stages and life stages that you long to be in. I remember watching us in that stage. Everyone around us seemed to be falling pregnant. You know, taking our lead from the New Testament, we also need to keep marriage and singleness in a, in a delicate tension within the church. Even as we openly seek to bless both, we, we can enable an environment where people move from singleness into relationship without others feeling left behind or without the community dividing into two camps of the loved or the lonely and the lost. Now, this, this is a complex and delicate balance to strike as in practice we seek to affirm singleness whilst also addressing the fact that prolonged singleness for some is very painful, both in our culture and within the context of the church. The church is one of the few remaining social contexts that should provide a safe and coherent relational opportunities for, that many people crave. The church, we would hope, can provide a natural social context in which relationships and friendships can develop without the pressure of dating. Of course, people will always feel a certain sense of pressure and exposure within this environment, which is often a bit of a fishbowl, to be honest with you, for want of a better word. But that's, that is unavoidable. Equally, it is a survivable 
reality. We can do this well. I've heard of churches where they've noticed the mutual frustration between sexes, even an anger that has started to develop. Some of the single women annoyed that the guys wouldn't initiate a relationship, while the single guys argue that the the women have, have snubbed them, and when they did take the initiative, they just seemed to be the wrong guy. And it kind of led to a relationship standoff, with each group pointing the finger of blame at the other. In addressing that dynamic within that particular church, they, they felt the need to publicly recast the expectations and spirit in which we relate as a community of faith. They came up with almost a relationship manifesto within the church. Now that involved expressing the conviction that they were first and foremost brothers and sisters in the family of the church. What what did that biblical mandate look like in real life? Well, firstly, they acknowledged that a biblical mandate has profound implications for how we go about exploring, forming, and in some cases, ending relationships. Ways that make us different from the culture at large. I'd say we need to embrace that. They agreed to treat each other with an extra degree and measure of grace and respect in what is a very messy and often complex area because we're in it together as a family. How many times would I say I've had people talking to me into the next stage and the next season of my life? You're engaged. When are you going to get married? You're married. When are you going to get... When are you going to have children? So unhelpful. When we were longing for children, those comments were a punch in the face, time and time again. In their manifesto, it involved the church committing to not gossiping. Thanks for listening. To find out more, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description. Thank you.